0: You're listening to The Voice of the Private Sector. Welcome to Brian Bushlack's Business Briefing. And I've been taking care of business every day.
1: Taking care of business and working
0: overtime. And we open up December with the focus on real estate. We'll talk commercial real estate specifically the red hot apartment market across Portland coming up in about 15 minutes with Joseph Chaplick from Joseph Bernard Investment Real Estate and a little bit later stay with us as we go behind the scenes at Expedia with one of the best PR people in the business. She's an Oregon native Sarah Gavin. First though let's talk about the economy and the residential real estate market with our expert Patrick Stone. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Williston Financial Group and WFG national title. Of course, as you know, living here, the Seattle market and Portland market continue to be the hottest in
1: the country. Absolutely, Brian. And I got to tell you, it's uh, it's going to continue. Demand exceeds supply as it has for the last few years. And actually starting about early 2015, the rate of acceleration in home prices in Seattle and Portland started outpacing the national average at a very significant level. And there's been some interesting statistics published lately. One of them, uh, there's a, a list of what is called severely unaffordable locations. The number one is San Jose, California. Number two is Honolulu. Number three is L.A. Portland ranks number nine and Seattle ranks number 10. And the severely unaffordable uh, designation is based on taking median price in a market and dividing it by median income. And to give you an example, Portland... Median price right now is 358,500, median income is 65,200, so Portland has a 5.5 5 multiple. Seattle is also at 5.5 5 with a median average price of 422,100 and a median average income of 76,900. So both of them have a 5.5 designation, ranked ninth and 10th. I'll give you some relativity there. Uh, San Jose is at 9.8 with a uh, median average uh, price of about a million and a median average income of about uh, 105,000. So uh, we are significantly uh, priced. Uh, We're about, uh, Seattle's about 32% above the peak in 2008. Portland's about 29% above the peak in 2008. People ask frequently, well, does this represent a bubble? I do not think it's a bubble in the sense that the price appreciation has been parallel to employment gains. So it's been driven by demand. It's not been driven by easy money, nor has it been driven by excess speculation in second homes or investment homes. So we are seeing a demand-driven market. We are also seeing a slowing down of the appreciation. If you look over the last 12 months, each month's year over year appreciation number is slightly lower than the preceding month, which means we're starting to top out. And I think within a year, the appreciation levels of both Seattle and Portland will be mirroring the national average, no longer exceeding it. And I think we'll stay there until we build more homes.
0: I'll never forget, we had breakfast a couple years ago and I said, Pat, how much longer is this going to continue? I mean, there's going to have to be a reset, and you looked at me and said, it's going to keep on going, and that's exactly what's happened.
1: Yeah, I think this is going to go on for a long time. Uh, you know, you look at the construction, what's going on in the country, and we uh, look at all new homes that are built in the country. It's still... Uh, Roughly 30% of the homes are under 250000 and only we're only building four new homes per thousand uh, people over 25 years of age. So new construction is still not fulfilling the demand. Uh, both Seattle and Portland have geographical limitations on construction, uh, so it's, it's going to be a fact of life. I shouldn't say it's a problem. It's a problem in the sense that there's not enough inventory, and it's a problem in the sense that demand exceeds supply. Uh it is not a problem in the sense yet that it is uh a, a bubble uh type of environment.
0: Chairman and CEO of WFG National title Pat Stone joining us. Uh let's talk about the tax bill. There's been a lot of headlines about this and I know uh some concern for homeowners, home buyers, uh the real estate markets. What's the latest here? Well, I <laughs> I gotta tell you I I'm a little
1: concerned too, Brian, and I think uh uh, one and and this is kind of ironic but i I personally am uh, very concerned about adding a one point five trillion dollars of debt to the national deficit over the next ten years uh our Our national debt has gone up significantly in the last ten years. We do not need to add additional debt and one of the things that uh I had hoped would happen with a Republican Senate. Uh, House of Representatives and Presidency, would, we would have a real uh, uh, focus on maintaining, uh, making sure that any tax bill would be revenue neutral. Uh, this tax bill would create $1.5 trillion with additional debt. I personally, and this is a personal opinion, uh, don't think it's necessary to do it the way they're doing it. I think it also has a potential negative impact on uh, real estate. Uh, a couple of interesting things just to point out. Um, there is very little consensus among, among economists that a tax cut has a positive economic benefit. And One of the arguments that's being made here is that by cutting taxes, cutting corporate taxes, we're going to stimulate growth. I would refer to two, I think, fairly uh, interesting studies that have been done in this area. One is done by the Congressional Budget Office in 2015, ranking the different things that recreate economic growth done by the government. Uh, the least impactful of anything the government could do, and anything being everything from unemployment through infrastructure through tax cuts, the least impactful is a corporate tax cut. So that's exactly what we're doing here. And then Moody Analytics did a study about five years ago on the impact of each dollar uh, you know spent by the government and they, they had the same consensus uh, you know the number one thing was unemployment each dollar spent by the government's a dollar 61 with an economic impact number two was infrastructure a dollar 54 last was a tax cut every dollar cut in taxes creates 70 cents worth of economic activity so I have a problem I think with the basic premise I also have a problem with the impact on real estate and I'll just give you just a short uh a short overview of what this will do as is currently um, uh, conceived. Uh, you know, the idea is to limit mortgage interest deductions to a $500,000 cap for new buyers, meaning uh, currently if you, you can deduct mortgage interest up to a million dollars. Now, it's been limited to new buyers, meaning that if you're in a home and you have a million dollar uh, uh, mortgage, you can still deduct interest on that million dollars. But if you buy a new home, it's limited to $500,000. Uh, it extends the time for capital gains from two years to five years. Uh, makes this high makes high property taxes less attractive. A ten thousand dollar cap on deductibility of property tax, eliminates the deduction for moving expenses and no deduction or interest for second home mortgages. Uh, it's really kind of fascinating to look at the uh, how the lines this lines up. You know, one of the one of the ideas uh, both in the uh, House and Senate tax bill is state and local taxes deductions will be limited or eliminated and uh, high income uh, mortgage interest deductions will be eliminated. So if you look at all the states uh, and you line the states up based on the percentage of filings that include tax deductions, uh, it turns out that the bulk of the states that uh, where you have high levels of, uh, de- of uh, itemized deductions our blue states, our Democratic states. So this, the burden of this will fall on principally Democratic states. So this, I think there's a little political, <laughs> political motivation behind it. Perhaps I do not like it. I don't think the tax bill is well thought out. Yes, our tax, our corporate tax rates are high, but U.S. corporations are making more money than they've ever made before because there's a lot of deductions that are involved in the tax rate that's stated. Uh, frequently is not actually what is being paid. So we need to adjust taxes. We need to make them more simple. But we need to have consensus. We need to have hearings. We need to have uh, both parties working towards a tax bill that really benefits all the American people.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so it sounds like the big picture, though, 1031 was a concern it sounds like that won't be included i guess 1031 of aircraft and yachts and art things like that. that's what they're talking about right like that impacts the one percent right so the 1031 uh it sounds like we'll be okay
1: yeah you know the tax bill is uh, it, it, by all appearances will significantly be- benefit upper income people more than uh, modest income people which again i think is somewhat unfortunate
0: Up next, we'll talk to Patrick Stone about interest rates. Should we be concerned about rate hikes in the year ahead? That's up next as Business Briefing continues across the region. Brian Bushlack is back with Business Briefing. And continuing our conversation with Patrick Stone, he's the chairman and CEO of Williston Financial Group and WFG National Title. You know, interest rates usually are top of mind, especially in the real estate market. Not so much anymore. And I ask Pat, why? I
1: think what's happening, Brian, is that the lack of inflation and the continued lack of inflation has caused people to lower their expectations for interest rate increases in the future. And that is a logical thing to happen. Now, uh, you do see um, that a lot of economists are predicting up to three uh, rate increases next year. Actually, Goldman Sachs is now predicting four rate increases next year. I tend to think it'll be two or three rate increases next year. Uh, underlying all this is a very robust conversation at the Fed about how to reposition themselves so they have the capability of reacting to another recession in a progressive uh, manner. In other words, they can help offset the recession with some sort of stimulus uh type activity at low rates they lose a lot of that ability so they're trying to figure out how to accommodate that because if inflation doesn't increase their ability to increase rates will be somewhat limited I do think they'll raise rates at least two times probably three times next year I don't know about four times that seems a little aggressive to me Uh, there's some very very good studies that have gone on about the uh, what has caused the slow are the lower amount of inflation and basically if you look at cyclical items versus non-cyclical items the cyclical items have increased and the non-cyclical items haven't for example if you look at overall global inflation if you look at things like uh, apparel uh, consumer goods discretionary items like that they are showing fairly significant price increases if you look at non-cyclical items like healthcare, communication, some under- underlying fundamental structural things, uh, they're not showing virtually no price increases. So, um, what we have that we're all looking at is a very low uh, rate of inflation in core items. Consequently, the Fed is is somewhat <laughs> somewhat challenged by this personally interest rates of mortgage if you're talking about mortgage rates i would be surprised if we don't see mortgage rates uh, top four and a half uh next year uh and five percent in 2019 and maybe even get up to six six percent by 2021 i think they are going to go up but i don't think they're going to go up very quickly
0: pat stone joining us he is the founder and chairman of wfg national title williston financial group uh, wrapping up 17 it's been a good year uh by most counts. Talk about 2018. You touch on that with interest rates. Uh, how does this year play out next year, 2018?
1: Well, you, we're really benefiting, Brian, from uh, global expansion. If you look at the uh, the information that the OECD, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, compiles, they actually follow 40 developed economies. And for the first time since 2007, all 40 economies are expanding simultaneously. Now, that's the world, and how does that impact us? That impact, impacts us very directly because our corporations are global, and our stock exchange actually reflects as much of the global activity as it does U.S. activity. So uh, unless we goof it up, unless we make some sort of policy decision that disrupts the global economic flow, uh, in other words, some arbitrary, or too many arbitrary tariffs, or uh, disbanding NAFTA or doing something that uh, causes a hiccup on the global economy, 2018 should be fine. I don't see a lot of upside uh, inflation. I don't see a lot of rate increases. I see a growing global economy. Uh, we should benefit if we don't mess it up. Uh, and that should probably even go into 2019. Now, we'll see you. You see a lot of people right now talking about a flattening yield curve and how that's a precursor to a recession. Historically that is if 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 in fact the yield curve inverts in other words if you get to the point where you have uh you know the 10 year uh with a higher rate than the 30 year then you've got you've got a problem Or the 2 year with a higher rate than the 10 year you've got a problem and you typically have a recession we have a flattening yield curve a lot of people think that's just because people are getting more used to uh, lower inflation long term inflationary ex- expectations So I don't know. I I am optimistic about 2018 and 2019. Um, I do think that we are getting quite a bit of debt in this country. Uh, We don't have uh, the same type of debt we had last time. In other words, if you look at margin debt in New York Stock Exchange, it is at an all-time high. It is uh, significantly higher than it was in 2007-2008. You look at corporate debt, it's 50% higher than it was then. But it's all in relatively well-structured, securitized uh, debt instruments. So we do have a lot of debt. We do not need, <laughs> we do not need another $1.5 trillion worth of government debt. Uh, but unless we screw it up, it should be good.
0: And I would say the same probably goes for the real estate market as well. You touched on this off the top of the show for our listeners who are just joining us. I want to recap that and put more of the focus on a forward look into 2018, specifically for uh, the Seattle-Bellevue market and Portland-Vancouver.
1: Demand will exceed supply, and consequently, you will have uh, you will continue to have price appreciation, although the price appreciation will start slowing because affordability is becoming more of a factor. You will not have enough units for the people that want to buy, uh, and so it's going to be a somewhat stressful market in the sense, again, that you have more demand than supply, but if you're a seller, it still is a good market to sell into, um, and I think it'll be a healthy market for the foreseeable future. Both Portland and uh, Seattle will benefit from increased employment for, the, uh, for as far as we can see.
0: Well, that's obviously good news. Thanks to Patrick Stone for sharing his insight. Now for the commercial market, and specifically multifamily, we call on Joseph Chaplick at Joseph Bernard Investment Real Estate for an update on the Rose City. You know,
2: Brian, Portland's always a strong multifamily market. It's It's been there for many years. Uh, the indicators show that it, it's slowing down a little, but still one of the strongest markets in the country. Um, more specifically, I can talk a little bit about vacancy rates and kind of where, where the people are moving into these apartments uh, around greater metro area of, of uh, Portland.
0: Yeah, break it down for us. It's interesting because I know that uh, the push has been over the past uh, decade to get uh, people to live downtown, but it sounds like that's uh, beginning to turn around a little bit. People are moving
2: out. Well, that, yeah, that's interesting. You know, here's what's going on in just vacancy rates to give you an, an average for the market. You know, Portland is still sub five percent. It's a four point three four and a quarter percent vacancy rate average but when you really dig into those numbers and you see where the highs and lows are you'd be surprised you know downtown 5.7 almost six percent vacancy rate in the marketplace the the lowest vacancy rate outer northeast you know we're talking you know 180th block you know, northeast 180th, you know, 170th, you know, the outer northeast. But when you really look at, you know, the greater metropolitan area and you expand out down I-5 corridor into Salem, 2.6 vacancy rate. And if you go east to Bend, they're not even at 1%. Bend, Oregon is at 0.7% vacancy rate. My now, goodness. Less product. Yeah, less product, but, you know, people are, in my opinion, moving out of the, the core of the city on apartments.
0: That's interesting. So, why is that, Joe? I mean, is it purely price that's driving people out of uh, the downtown core?
2: You know, prices are high for rent. You know, we break it down to the rent per square foot, and, and the average in downtown is two dollars and thirty cents. Um, compare that to outer northeast, where I just said had the lowest vacancy in the metro area, dollar twenty-one a square foot. Wow. You know, compare that to Salem, a dollar twenty, and then again Bend, Oregon. Uh, twenty-five a square foot average. So people are going where it's more affordable for the rent. Now, if you look at, you know, just what that rent per square foot is on a one-bedroom, one-bath unit, downtown Portland, almost $1,450 for one-bedroom, one-bath average. Compare that to your outer northeast, $900. That's a one-bedroom, one-bath. And then, you know, you, you look at a two-bedroom one bath, almost 15 and a quarter downtown, average. You go out to the outer northeast, 1,050. You know, again, that's the average. There's high and low, but that's really where people are moving to. They're, they're, I think you have a higher demand in that outer area of the city. It used to ripple from the, the center out, and you know, the center was where everybody wanted to be, close in, east or west side of town. But what's happening is the prices are, are driving so high uh, that people are moving you know, a little further east, to to get lower rents but again you compare this to any other city in the in the west coast and portland is fairly affordable compared to all the other markets
0: and after the break we'll continue our conversation with joseph chaplick and look at markets outside of the metro areas that's up next as business briefing continues Your business is our business. You're listening to Brian Bushlack's Business Briefing. And moving past the bottom of the hour across the region on Talk Radio 570 KVI across Seattle, Bellevue and Tacoma and in Portland, Vancouver on Freedom 970. We continue our conversation on commercial real estate, specifically the apartment market. This is such a unique market, of course, inventory extremely tight, not only in Portland, but in Seattle as well. And more and more investors are looking outside of these key metro markets for the next opportunity. We bring in Joseph Chaplick from Joseph Bernard Investment Real Estate. And very important here to let you know that they focus solely on the apartment market, not just commercial real estate. The apartment market is really its own animal. And you need to work with somebody who knows what they're doing when to buy and when to, quite frankly, walk away. That's what many investors are doing now when it comes to these metro markets. Prices are high. There's not much inventory. And I talked to Joe about this. Turns out the savvy investors are now
2: looking outside of the metro markets. What I've seen is the price per unit. When you're looking at, you know, making an investment, you want to get a return. You know, you look at cap rates, which is the, the, rate of return if you paid all cash for the building, but most people leverage with 25, 30% down. And then after they service the mortgage, they're going to have a cash on cash return. And and so they're looking at those investment returns that the cap rate in the market has increased from last year's third quarter um, slightly, uh, but still uh, holding right below six, 5.8 average. Uh, The price per unit was about 140 thousand dollars um average right now and that was you know up from uh about a hundred and five a year ago for the average so, wow. so again prices are going up but that's because the rents are going up it's an income approach to the investment so the value is equal to the to the um income over the rate and that's how we, we calculate these values on the buildings but when you're comparing the market overall it's it's healthy you know we, we do have less transactions from last year's third quarter, but overall, you know, uh, it doesn't matter which way the wind blows. Uh, people are moving money. They're reinvesting into bigger, better, stronger buildings. And we're always needed as multifamily experts.
0: Joseph Chaplik joining us. Let's talk about other markets. I know you have an office in, uh, Phoenix and, uh, give us an update there. I know I'm always curious to kind of get, uh, you've got the Portland and the Northwest and what, what are, you know, what's going on in the desert?
2: You know, Phoenix is a, let's say Arizona in general, is a strong market. It was really hit hard years ago, I mean, it was almost eight years ago. And, you know, we do have an office in Scottsdale and Tucson, and those are the two stronger markets. And one thing that's fueling the apartment market in the, both of those towns are the, the jobs, the economic. Growth that they're seeing, and, and I'll throw some, some numbers out for you because there's a huge correlation between Oregon and Arizona with people that just go back and forth. And it seems like people that want to get out of the heat go to the rain, and people that want to get out of the rain come to the heat. So I've seen that going back and forth with my travels, um, but the job growth is incredible. If you look at Phoenix alone, you know, let's start with um, Intel investing seven billion dollars in a new factory in Chandler, Arizona. Okay, employing 3,000 workers. Intel's in Portland, right? They're they're strong in Arizona. IKEA is opening up a second store. Uh, ADP is hiring 1,500 jobs in Tempe. Um, Apple's bringing high-tech manufacturing to Arizona. Uh, Quicken Loans hiring 1,100 people, you know, with a new facility downtown Phoenix. Uh, Grand Canyon University, everybody knows ASU, Arizona State, but Grand Canyon University was a private, a private college, private Christian, had you know, 3,000, 4,000 uh, students. They're going to expand over 14,000 more students by 2020. I think their goal is to be at like 25,000 or, or greater, but they're also hiring 3,000-plus employees. So Grand Canyon is growing significantly with over 3,000 staff. Um, UPS um, adding 1,500 jobs in Goodyear. JP Morgan Chase building a a new campus, moving 4,000 jobs into Tempe. Um, Northern Trust opening a $95 regional operations center in Tempe, hiring 1,000 people. So these are just some highlights, a lot of growth in Phoenix. And so where that puts the apartment market, uh, an up arrow, green arrow up. Everything is increasing. We've seen the value price per unit. Cap rates have dropped. Uh, lower cap rates, higher price. Rents have gone up. Uh, we're seeing price per square foot jump almost $15 in one year. Price per square foot. Price per unit jumped almost $25,000. Price per unit um, for similar product built somewhere in the 80s and 90s. So that's that's the market in Phoenix.
0: That's good to hear. It sounds like uh, kind of the big growing markets. You got Portland and Seattle. Ah uh, Phoenix growing as well, where are all these people coming from into Phoenix? are they moving out of the midwest Joe where is it coming from
2: I think they're coming from all over you know we're we're seeing growth in all these markets and and you know one of my favorite markets is Tucson. I like to compare Tucson to the Salem market about ten years ago. Tucson is up and coming again with some job growth. I won't go through all the numbers, but again, adp's adding Caterpillar has a regional headquarters down there. Comcast is bringing a thousand jobs um, there's Raytheon adding 2,000 jobs. So, so Tucson has growth, too. But when you look at the total population, to, Tucson, a million people compared to 4.5 million in Phoenix. When you look at the, the price per unit in Tucson, the, the average price in Tucson, 65000 and that's a really nice product. Um, most of the, the Class C, a little bit rougher, maybe need some renovations. Is around 45 to 50 thousand a unit, and, and when you put that in comparison, you know the, the rougher stuff in, in Portland is about 95 hundred and five thousand dollars a unit for the same product, 70s, you know, low 80s built, um, two bedroom one bath units, and so when you look at the cap rates and the investment, we got a lot of people moving money from Oregon into the Phoenix Tucson market. We, we've handled a you know dozen transactions from people. Again, selling and moving their asset you know, equity into another building, um, managing it from afar and making trips into the Tucson-Phoenix market because it's a stronger return. They're getting you know, double the amount of, of units, which magnifies their return on the investment in you know, three to five, seven years because uh, every time there's a rent increase, you have that many more units that generates that, that much more increase of, of overall annual income.
0: Well, and I'll tell you what, the additional tax write-off is if you live in the Pacific Northwest and own property in uh, sunny Phoenix, Scottsdale, or Tucson is, well, you got to go check out those properties, right, Joe? So the best time to
2: do it would be <laughs> during the winter, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when it's raining. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it, it, and I'll tell you, Brian, you know, the Portland market, you know, we've been in the market since 2004. Uh, it, Portland is still a very strong market for apartments. Uh, it, it's still a low price per unit compared to the West Coast, like I shared with you earlier. The, the returns are strong. It's a stable product. Uh, there was a talk about the, you know, the, the rent increases not more than 10% a year by city council. Uh, that is still to be determined how far that's going to go. But what that, I believe, is going to have a negative effect on the, um, on the tenants itself. A lot of our clients we've spoke with, are kind of you know upset with Multnomah County and just feel that now when they have a vacant unit, they're going to push the rents 10%. They're going to max them up 10% a year uh, when they have a vacant unit. And, and the average over the last 15 years has been about 5% a year. So I think we're going to see a jump in rents. We may have a little bit higher vacancy, one or two points in the next couple of years, but but I really believe the rents are going to continue to climb.
0: Well, no doubt about that. Thanks to Joseph Chaplick at Joseph Bernard Investment Real Estate always great insight. If you'd like to contact him, great website, updated listings, and tons of information at josephbernard.net. Again, Joe Chaplick at josephbernard.net. When we come back, we'll head to Bellevue and go behind the scenes at Expedia headquarters with one of the top spokespeople in the business. Brian Bushlack is back with Business Briefing. And moving toward the top of the hour across the region on Talk Radio 570, KVI in Seattle and Portland welcoming you on Freedom 970. You know, so many of us spend so much time on social media, you kind of get addicted I have the same feeling when it comes to that Expedia app. I <laughs> I honestly can't live without it, okay? If you travel as much as I do, you're a travel junkie, and you're not using that Expedia app, shame on you. Uh, this is the best thing to come along and travel since Expedia came along about 20 years ago. This app is invaluable, and you can get double points by booking on the app. It's, quite frankly, when you get used to it, probably easier than booking online, so check it out. This Expedia app is pretty cool, and for me, what a treat to go behind the scenes at Expedia headquarters in Bellevue and Seattle and introduce you to the person I think is probably one of the best PR people in the country, easy to work with, great on camera, and we finally tracked her down. Sarah Galvin joins us to talk about doing Expedia PR. Hey, Sarah, thanks for joining us. Tell us about your role here at Expedia.
3: Well, I have the coolest job in PR. I run the communications team here at Expedia, the best travel company in the whole world.
0: You got a great team. Now, tell us, what are your top tips for being a good spokesperson?
3: Well the big thing is the way that you talk and the way that your face looks and the way that your hands work uh, has to match the story, right? So if you're telling a story about how fun it is to go play on the beach and hear all of the beach trends, you should be really perky and upbeat. If you're telling a story, you know, where you're apologizing for something horrible that's happened to a customer, you've got to match your tone and match your your body language and your facial expressions to that story. And and that really makes you look much more genuine and much more authentic than, you know, sort of mixing and matching those.
0: You're one of my favorite people in PR, not only because you're really good at it, but you've got this dual state connection with Oregon and Wisconsin. How did you come to Expedia? How did you gain all this expertise?
3: Well, it's super funny. So when I was in high school, my senior year of high school, I said all I wanted to do was do PR for a major technology company. And then I went to college and I went and took my first PR course and I was like, oh, I don't think I like this at all. So I was pre-med for four years. In Wisconsin, and then, uh, but I I did PR the the entire time for the university as to, you know my sort of college job, and so then when I graduated, I was going to take a couple years off to you know save money for med school. And, you know, I looked at my resume, and everything I had on there was a PR job. And so I went into PR, and I was like, oh, this is really fun in practice. The the practical side of this is way more fun than the theoretical side. And then I uh, did PR for Microsoft, working at Wagner-Edstrom, which is now We Communications, and then uh, came over to Expedia about six years ago.
0: And the rest is history. You're doing a great job here. I know you deal with lots of stuff all around the world. Talk about uh, nerves, right? I mean, you got big time executives and, you know, global initiatives here. Do you ever get nervous?
3: Oh my gosh. You know what? People ask me that all the time because, you know, you, you sort of get on TV or, you know, you get on the stage and you look like you're totally put together. I am the most nervous person ever before. And, and you know, you get over that with just a lot of practice. And then you turn that, that nervousness into sort of excitement and into anticipation and into energy and it all works out.
0: So tell us what are your top do's and don'ts to be a worldwide exceptional PR person.
3: Well, let's start with the don'ts. So the biggest don't I would say is you know don't answer a question that you're not supposed to answer, and that seems super obvious, but I'll tell you in in real life that is an incredibly hard thing to do. You know you want to know what your message is going into things. You know we, I was just uh, connecting. We re- we recently um, announced our new CEO, and so I, I was recently talking to him about you know what we thought that we wanted our narrative to be going forward. And I said like listen, the most you can pick is two or three different storylines, and we're not going to do anything outside of those two two or three different storylines. We're gonna pick the sound bites that match those, and then we're gonna know where we're going, right? It's like going on a road trip. If you know where you're going, it's gonna be a much better trip than if you're just sort of meandering around. You're more likely to say the things that you're supposed to say, and you're much more likely to avoid those things that you're not supposed to say.
0: How about going, quote unquote, off the record?
3: Oh, there's no such thing as off the record. Uh, You know, even when you, so there's always a risk that if you say we're going off the record, Uh, that you're going to get quoted anyway that you could just the the reporter that you're talking to could just decide you know what the scoop is too good um typically most reporters are are much too um, much too thoughtful and much too honest to do that to you but they'll still you know try to sort of push the envelope a little bit and and say oh a source close to the situation and then it obviously is you um so i would be very very careful and and my big trick is if you think that you're going off the record you actually have to get the person to say yes i agree that we're going off the record i've had many a spokesperson say okay so i want to talk about this off the record and then just keep talking instead of have the reporter say okay kind of an important detail
0: as a former sportscaster uh network local got to ask all sorts of interesting questions to interesting people all over america anyway i gotta ask you you know Sometimes people get defensive, too. And and I know you want to talk about this, the can't hands out. What does that mean?
3: Oh, so we love our can't hands here. So we're a publicly traded company. You know, we've, we have a, a reputation for doing a lot of acquisitions. You know, every quarter we've got our earnings calls. And so from time to time, you'll get a question that you really can't answer because, you know, there are real ramifications if you do. And so we talk about um, having our can't hands out. So you know everybody talks about deflection. You know I can't answer that question because I'm you know fill in the blanks. I I it's not my job. I don't know the answer. It's not the right time to talk about that, et cetera. But what I've found internally here is that that's a hard one for people to actually do. And so we train everybody to use their can't hands. So when we do our our spokesperson trainings, we have everyone stand up. And they have to say, I, I can't answer the question, while they push their hands out in front of them like they're trying to stop a train. And then they have to make up a reason why they can't answer the question. And it's become a whole phenomenon here at Expedia. Everybody says, oh, it's the can't hands, girl. That's so funny. And, and everyone now uses it really well. It's, it, it has created this really sticky memory so that when people need to, to pull on something to get them out of a situation, they're like, oh, I remember those can't hands. And then, it, and then they get out of that situation.
0: I'm going to remember that one. We're at Expedia headquarters with Sarah Gavin. So tell us your tips uh, when the conversation kind of moves away uh, from those key messages, because it almost always does.
3: Well, it all comes down to bridging back. And that's sort of the big phrase in the PR space. So, you know, someone could ask you a question of, you know, let's say you want to talk about what you ate for breakfast today. And someone asks you the question of, you know, do you like motorcycles? And, you know, the right answer to that question is, you know, it's really interesting that you ask about motorcycles. The other day I was on my motorcycle and I went to the IHOP and had the most amazing pancakes. That's how you sort of bridge back to something. And you've got to sort of find those connections that make that really natural.
0: And talk about other pointers, because I know we can't cover everything here. We can try. But any other pointers you have for messaging or for PR people?
3: and you know, the biggest thing is you've got to bring the story to life right the no one wants to hear you just spout out a bunch of talking points that you've you know edited 55,000 times they want to hear actual color and they want to hear a story that brings that brings whatever you're telling them to life um, and that brings your company to life and so that that becomes the most important part is have your stories planned out in advance like we were talking about sort of that road trip mentality know the stories that you want to tell think about the color that brings those stories to life, and then work that in really naturally. It'll make your spokespeople a lot more human. It'll make the story much more interesting. And it'll build your relationships with, with reporters because they'll know you, you can come to the table with something that's really cool.
0: You've got this great team. We work with PR people all around the world in travel. And these ladies on your team, the guys and gals here at Expedia are absolutely the best in the business. How'd you put together this team?
3: Well, you're exactly right. You know, I uh, there's a quote that I love from Isaac Newton, and he says, "If if I've seen further, it is only because I am standing on the shoulder of giants." And that's how I feel. You know, we we've pulled together the best people in the world. Um, you know, we hire people who are deeply passionate, who are, um, you know, really driven for excellence, but also have a lot of humanity to them. You know, there's a, a really good sense that you can show up to this job and make mistakes and learn, and that learning is actually part of your job description. Um, and I think that that's made it a really incredible Incredibly special place and I am incredibly lucky to have my team
0: it's been great to get you in one place one time for like 10 minutes and catch up with you thanks for joining us
3: thanks so much for having me
0: that's Sarah Gavin the Expedia PR expert you might see her on TV online everywhere Sarah is the best in the business an Oregon native spent some time in Wisconsin She's back, and what a great role for her at Expedia. I want to thank her and her team for arranging that interview. Also want to thank you for joining us as we open up December on Business Briefing. In coming weeks, we'll talk about Disneyland, some inside tips. If you're planning a trip there next year, and accessibility is so important, we'll talk about that as well. For now, though, that's all the time we have this week. We'll talk to you again next weekend right here.